0: from Quoted Studios. This is Blank on Blank, distributed by the public radio exchange PRX.org. I'm David Gerlach. In the 1960s, Hunter S. Thompson spent more than a year living and drinking with members of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. They rode up and down the California coast, And what he saw alongside this group of renegades on Harleys, these hairy outlaws who rampaged and faced charges of attempted murder, assault and battery, destruction of property along the way, all this became the heart of Thompson's first book, Hell's Angels, a strange and terrible saga. Shortly after the book came out in 1966, Thompson sat down for a radio interview with the one and only Studs Terkel. Roll the tape. like the motorcycle. Anybody who
1: has any kind of sensuality in them at all would get a tremendous boot out of just what the angels call screwing it on, just getting a big bike and just running it flat out as fast as it'll go. I used to take it out at night on the coast highway, just drunk out of my mind, ride it for 20 and 30 miles in just uh, short pants and a t-shirt. It's a beautiful feeling. <laughs> I recognize it as a, an illusion and a, and a fantasy. But for somebody who has nothing else to go back to, this is maybe one of the happiest minutes of his life. And you can imagine if that's true, just how powerful he'd feel if he could give you one of these, uh, you know, kind of, yeah. in the in the head with a karate. It's not a chop, it's a so head yeah. snap. The angel, a lot of the angels are big on karate. Here's a powerful thing that you can get, and it's safe. You know, you know carrying a gun is not safe for anybody with a criminal record or is likely to get stopped. Oh, karate is really booming on the West Coast. The Angels see it as a as something that they can have, you know, to give them even more power over the
2: squares and the citizens. Leonard Thompson, our guest, is a new kind of journalist. The journalist who is not detached, who becomes involved. In fact, he was almost an honorary member, or a dishonored member of the Oakland Hell's Angels. You were with them for about a year or so. About
1: a year, yeah. They claim, the Angels anyway, claim that They don't look for trouble. You know, they just try to live peaceful lives and be left alone. But on the other hand, they go out and put themselves into situations deliberately and constantly that are either gonna humiliate somebody else or cause them to avoid humiliation by fighting. I've seen them countless times put people in situations where they have to either crawl or fight, just almost by just being there and smiling at them. And of course, you know, they they live in a world that isn't as polite as the world that, you know, a lot of people live in. It takes a while to cultivate that kind of bitterness, where when somebody calls you, you know, a dirty bum, You don't uh, look in the mirror and think, well, maybe I should wash my face. You go out and, you know, rub scum on you and get dirtier. Then you go back in and punch him and break a bottle and stick it in his gut. They like to throw it back in your face and say, yes, here I am, a dirty bum. I'm even
2: dirtier than you thought. And I'm also going to punish you for calling me that and making me that, too. You speak of foul fighting, they stomp someone, you were stomped, in which yeah. there's a question of rules involved here, just oh. beating some violence for the sake of well, violence. Well, they have a rule, it's, it's bylaw either number 10 or 11.
1: It says, uh, when an angel punches a non-angel, all other angels will participate. So I was a victim of bylaw number 10 or 11. Yeah. I should have known that, you know, yeah. it's a lapse of uh, caution. All during this stomping, I could see the guy who had originally teed off on me, just out of, you know, from nowhere with no warning circling around with a rock about, oh, must have weighed about 20 pounds. I tried to keep my eyes on him because I didn't want to hit my skull fracture. When they get together in big mobs, they're very hard to handle. They try to get together in as large a band as they can. So if the police know it's not just a matter of grabbing somebody by the ear and leading him into the traffic court. They might cause you know, a riot. And, and of course, it's not just the police. In a small town, uh, the people who live there, like a town of 10 or 20,000, get excited and terrified. and. They arm themselves and stand around in bands on street corners with guns and knives and clubs because they really believe that the angels are gonna come in and
2: decimate the town. Angels bring out this violence in other people because they are dressed up, bearded, long hair, earring and ear perhaps, a swastika helmet or a confederate flag, which some of the locals would like very much, but they bring something out.
1: to trace some kind of roots it's hard because they're very reluctant to talk about who they really are it's hard to even get them sometimes to tell you their names but rather than uh oh just kind of blaming poverty i decided that it was more of a, a quality of, of rootlessness you know sort of having no home like terry the tramp one of the angels who helped me the most listed about seven places as is as where he was from he didn't really know where he was from i think he knew where his mother was he never mentioned his father and he, they apparently lived all over the country every place from detroit to norfolk to fresno and this
2: aimlessness and rootlessness here you're talking about. Yeah, it's
1: a sense of having no,
2: no place to be, no place to go. Your observations are more than about the angels, they're about our society. And it's since World War II, pretty much, isn't it, this phenomenon's come to be?
1: I think the angels came out of World War II, and this whole kind of alienated, violent subculture of people wandering around looking for you know, either an opportunity or, if not an opportunity, then vengeance for not getting an opportunity. Yeah, they get to be 30, and suddenly they wake up one morning and they realize, you know, there are no more chances. It's all gone. It makes them meaner, you know. They, they want to get back at the people who put them in this terrible, this dead-end
2: tunnel. Now, who are these people they want to get back at?
1: Oh, they don't know. It's kind of they. Paranoid. You know, it's you, it's me, it's whoever might come too close to him on the highway, in you know, car. It's somebody who makes a remark in a bar to him. them. They call them the citizens. Anybody who looks respectable and looks like he isn't doomed. You know, like he has some kind of option or money or a home or all the things they don't have.
2: What do you see society? for us,
1: for everything? Christ, that's bad. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not really very optimistic, but I think one of the most important things is to, is to recognize that we do have this mounting violence in us, and then to find the reasons, and once you find that, it's like curing a, a boil. You know? And if, if people insist on saying, I am very gentle person and, the, and only these little big gang of hoodlums over there is ugly and mean, then it's just putting off the recognition of the, the, the same venom that, that the angels are spewing around in public. A lot of people are just keeping bottled up in private. I think this technological what, the science of uh, obsolescence or the, the fact that people are becoming obsolete, the people who are most affected by this are the ones least capable of understanding the reasons for it. So the venom builds up much quicker. It feeds on their ignorance until you recognize what's happening, you know, what, what makes you do these wild things. First I used to throw beer bottles into bar mirrors and stuff like that, and get stomped always. I can't remember ever winning a fight. I don't, I don't do it anymore because I finally caught on to what was happening. And until you recognize it, it's, it's like a, uh, an albatross around your neck. Yeah, I learned a lot about myself just writing about the angels. I was, I was seeing a very ugly side of myself a lot of times. You know, I'm, I'm much more conscious of the kind of l- anger that lurks all on you know everywhere. But I don't uh, do any, you know, I keep my mouth shut now. I turned into a
0: professional coward. Hunter S. Thompson and Studs Terkel, 1967. As always, we've brought this remarkable audio to life in our animated series with PBS Digital Studios. Watch it on our website, blankonblank.org. There we've also compiled more backstory on the Hell's Angels of the 1960s and a little bit about the art of guns of journalism. This interview with Hunter S. Thompson comes to us from the Studs Terkel Radio Archive. Uh, you should really check out studsturkel.org. There you can hear hundreds of interviews from Studs' 45-plus years on the radio at WFMT in Chicago. The wizard Amy Drozdovska produced this episode with me, and I do hope you're following us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, find our handle blank on blank. All right, that's all for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm David Gerlach.
1: I would just call the Hells Angels in Oakland the only violent part of our society. I think Lyndon Johnson is, you know, would be a good Hells Angel. The angels reflect not only the lower segments of the society, but the higher, you know, where violence takes a much more sophisticated and respectable form.